and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, November 16th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined today via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, everybody. And Joanne Kennan of the Johns Hopkins University and Politico magazine. Hi, everyone. No interview this week, but more than enough news, so we will get right to it. So the federal government is not going to shut down when the current continuing spending resolution expires at 12.01 a.m. Saturday. In basically a rerun of what happened at the end of September, new House Speaker Mike Johnson ended up having to turn to Democrats to pass another CR. This one extends a bunch of federal programs until January 19th and the rest of them until February 2nd. Most of HHS is in the latter category, but the FDA, because it's funded through the Department of Agriculture spending bill, would be in the group that's funded only only through January 19th. Don't worry if you don't remember that. The stated goal here is to use the next two months, minus what's likely to be a sizable Christmas break, to finish work on the individual appropriation bills, of which exactly zero of 12 have passed both the House and Senate and been sent to the president. Meanwhile, in just the last week, House Republicans have been unable to pass any of the individual appropriations they have brought to the floor, and a few haven't been able to even get to the floor. Yesterday, Republican leaders pulled the plug on the rest of the week's floor schedule, literally in the middle of a series of votes on the HHS spending bill. So Democrats are not going to bail them out on these individual bills the way they have on the relatively clean continuing resolutions, because the individual bills include very deep spending cuts and lots of abortion and transgender and other culture wars riders. So what exactly do they think is going to change between now and the next deadline? Well, there's been a lot of chatter about how cranky members of Congress have gotten because they worked 10 weeks in a row. Most of us work 10 weeks in a row without destroying each other, but there it is. Um, and so there's the hope that when they come yes, back... There, there were threats of physical violence this week. And, and allegedly some actual physical violence. Um, so, you know, most, most of us work 10 weeks in a row without assaulting our colleagues, but uh, <laughs> we are not members of Congress. Um, so, you know, the idea is they could take some time to cool off <laughs> um, and, and come back and be more collaborative. But really, this, this is a problem the Republican caucus has not been able to solve. You have dissent on the right of the caucus and the sort of more moderate left or more left side of the caucus. You know, you have moderate members who are worried about getting reelected in districts that voted for Biden who are not wanting to vote for these spending bills that are full of anti-trans and anti-abortion provisions, um, which could easily, you could easily picture that being used against them in campaign ads. Um, and then you have folks on the far right in the the Freedom Caucus, who are sort of, you know, tanking these individual bills to protest the overall trajectory of spending and the overall process. Um, so, you know, the, this, this is not going away anytime soon. And like you said, Dem Democrats are not bailing them out here. One other point I wanted to make, oh, sorry, Julie, on the deadlines is that um, for people who are interested in health policy and PBM reform and 
dish cuts, all of those, that, those all have a January 19th deadline. So that, those will come with the first round. So I think for the people out there who are worried about those policies, community health centers, extenders, that will happen with the first um, deadline, even though the full like labor HHS appropriations aren't until the second one. Yeah, these continuing resolutions do carry some of these sort of extraneous, what we like to call extender provisions that would otherwise have expired. Um, And so they'll keep them going for another couple of months and keep lobbyists busy sort of wringing their hands and keep all of our inboxes full of of emails of people warning of terrible things that will happen if these programs aren't continued. But I mean, I sort of want to go back to the fundamental problem, underlying problem here, though, is that first of all, the conservative Republicans say they want to, you know, put the budget on a different trajectory. Well, Uh, discretionary spending, which is what we're talking about here with the 12 spending bills, is a tiny portion of what makes up the budget and the budget deficit. So even if they were to cut all of these programs as dramatically as they like, they wouldn't have much of an impact on the overall budget. I'm sort of mystified that people don't keep pointing that out. Well, and they're they're also cutting things that won't save money. I mean, they wanted to cut things like IRS enforcement, which would lose money because then the IRS wouldn't be going after wealthy tax cheats and, and recouping that government spending. And so some of this is ideological. You know, they're going after healthcare programs that support LGBT people, for instance. And, you know, that doesn't save that much money. But, you know, there's been a lot of speeches from Republicans railing against the substance of the programs and calling them woke and inappropriate and and such. And so, you know, yes, some of this is fiscal, but a lot of it is also ideological. Yeah, it's a relatively small portion of federal dollars, but a relatively large portion of culture war. (laughs) Yes, I think that is a very good way to put it. Because of course, it's a place where they can put culture war things because they come up, they have to come up every year. But yeah, that, I think that's that's why we end up fighting over this. All right, well, this this fight has been put off until 2024, although it'll be the first thing when we get back. Yeah, and nothing's really going to change except maybe, you know, I mean, cooler heads prevail. Anyone see any cooler heads around there? Um, they may come back a little bit more personally tolerant when they've had a, some time off over the holidays. But the basic ideological and political alignment and the loggerheads like the only thing that changes between November, December and, and January is it's colder here then. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, yeah, I mean, they, the far right of the House Republican caucus is going to have to realize that there is a Senate and there is a president and they all get a say in what these final bills look like, too. So they can't just dictate we're going to make all these cuts. And if not, we're going to close down the government unless that's what they decide to do. But I think um, they skip that session in their orientation. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> they just don't. They're, they're, they're not finding, OK, where's the compromise? What do we really, really, really want? And what are we willing? to trade that for. They're not doing that. If you give and take, everybody gets some victory and you have to sort of identify what victory you can get that satisfies you. But there's no sign of any kind of sort of realistic grasp that this is divided government. Right. And they have not, yeah, they have, they have yet to figure that out. All right, well, let us turn to abortion where there is always news. We are going to start in Ohio, where last week voters, by a pretty healthy margin, approved a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. Now, though, some anti-abortion lawmakers in Ohio say, never mind, we can overrule that. Really, Alice? So there are efforts going on in both Ohio and Michigan to block, undo, undermine what voters voted for in these referenda. And 
based on, you know, talking to sources, it seems like neither of these really have legs. They're, they're sort of seen as just messaging. Um, but I think that the, even, even the attempt to try to undermine or undo what voters overwhelmingly approved is, is telling and interesting. And of course, it builds on all of the attempts leading up to the votes that we saw from these same forces to try to change the rules, make it more difficult. Um, uh, so I think, you know, when state legislatures around the country come back into session in January, we're going to be watching closely to see if they pass things that aim to block these votes. So definitely something to keep an eye on. I did see that the Speaker of the Ohio House has poured at least some cold water on this effort, right? I mean, that the, the argument had been from some of these lawmakers that, the, um, that because the Supreme Court gave this decision back to the states, that means only state legislatures and not the courts and not the voters directly. Am I, am I interpreting that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the speaker was pretty firm. I mean, he said, it, what did he say? It was schoolhouse rock. I mean, he basically said that the voters, they, they matter. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the the court that they want to cut out of this in Ohio is very conservative. Um, and so, you know, this isn't like, you know, oh, we want to block these, you know, liberal activist judges from weighing in here. This is, you know, we want to keep this solely in the hands of the legislature um, and, and not have really courts have a role in it at all, even though the courts are very conservative and, you know, are tilt in the anti-abortion direction anyway, which I think is notable. We'll definitely watch that space in the in the the upper Midwest Great slash Great Lakes. Well, elsewhere in Alabama, in a story that I didn't think got the coverage it deserved, the Justice Department is joining a case brought by an abortion fund and some former abortion providers about whether the state might be able to prosecute them for helping women travel to obtain an abortion in another state. Department of Justice says, of course, states can't prevent people from traveling to other states for things that are legal in the other state, but not in their state. Otherwise, very few people would be able to go to Las Vegas. But the state attorney general has yet threatened to try to prosecute, has he not? Yeah, so this this is happening in a few states, but it's sort of come to a head in Alabama in terms of treating groups that, you know, either provide material support for people to travel across state lines for an abortion or even just information, even just, you know, here's here's a clinic that you can call in this other state, um, you know, not even a formal uh, referral, uh, medical referral, but just information about where to go. The attorney general has, you know, threatened to consider that, uh, you know, kind of a criminal conspiracy to, to violate Alabama's abortion ban. Um, so this is an interesting test. And I think it may, you know, like the travel bans we've sort of been seeing proposed and, and even implemented in some, you know, um, cities, states, etc. They're sort of trying a bunch of different things. But, you know, these these are basically impossible to enforce. Um, and so really what's happening here is an attempt to undo some of the chilling effect of these laws. Right now, people are so afraid of being charged um, with, you know, criminal conspiracy that they're holding off on even, you know, providing publicly available information, you know, that likely protected by the First Amendment. Um, and so they're hoping that a court ruling saying you do have the right to to at least discuss this and even, you know, give people support to travel will undo some of that chilling effect. And I, yeah, I think that's sort of the key here. 
Yeah, well, moving moving on to Texas, where a lot of these other travel bans have been tried, at least in some cities and counties. Um, we want to go back to that case where a half a dozen women who couldn't get care for pregnancy complications because of the state's abortion ban sued. Uh, well, now there are 22 plaintiffs in that case, including two doctors and a then medical student who discovered her fetus's lethal abnormalities at an 18-week scan. The Texas Supreme Court is supposed to hear this case later this month. But Alice, this could really end up before the U.S. Supreme Court, couldn't it? This is this is the concern of women who uh, who are not trying to have abortions. They're they were basically trying to complete pregnancies and have had things go terribly wrong. And as you just said, doctors afraid to treat them for fear that they're going to be prosecuted. Yeah, and and so this is you know sort of where state abortion bans are running up against federal protections for you know you have to treat a patient who comes in who's experiencing a medical emergency. Um, this is the EMTALA of federal law, and you know these these things are in conflict. Um, anti-abortion groups and advocates say that they are not, and that medical care in these situations is already protected. But as we've seen with this chilling effect, doctors are afraid to act in these situations, and they're telling patients to go away and come back when things are more dire. Um, And that, in some cases, in these plaintiffs' cases, has led to pretty permanent damage, Um, damage to their future fertility, you know, threats to their lives. And so, you know, these cases are not seeking to get rid of the abortion bans entirely, as some other lawsuits are, but they are seeking to, you know, really um, make clear, because it's not clear to medical providers right now, make clear what is allowed in in these um, really sensitive and precarious medical situations. Yeah, I've, I keep hearing a lot of the anti-abortion forces saying, well, it's not technically an abortion in these cases. You know, if it's an ectopic pregnancy or, you know, something or the, the, the woman's water has broken early and she's going to get septic. And it's like, except that medically, yes, they are. A termination of pregnancy is termination of pregnancy. And that's why the doctors are saying, you can call this anything you want. We're the ones who are going to get thrown in jail and lose our medical licenses. All right. Well, before we move on, uh, I want to talk some abortion politics. Uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who had been the only Republican presidential candidate strongly pushing for a federal 15-week abortion ban, suspended his campaign this week uh, after what happened in Virginia last week, which we talked about at some length, when Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin tried to win back the state legislature for Republicans by promising to sign his own 15-week ban and lost spectacularly. Uh, Where does that leave Republicans on abortion going into 2024. Obviously, the the 15-week ban as a compromise doesn't seem to be flying. No, certainly not. And, you know, Tim Scott and Mike Pence were some of anti-abortion groups' favorite candidates who were, you know, saying what they wanted to hear. And both of their uh, campaigns have now <laughs> have now ended. And so um, meanwhile, you have the people who have, you know, been a little more squishy from anti-abortion advocates perspective anyways, um, like Nikki Haley and Trump himself, you know, doing doing the best. <laughs> um, you know, DeSantis also sort of middling right now on, on the downward trajectory, seemingly. DeSantis, who signed a six week ban in Florida. Exactly, but was also kind of unclear about what he would do as president, which which um, the anti-abortion groups did not like. It's interesting, maybe telling that the the people who were sort of the staunchest anti-abortion voices have have not seemed to do well in this moment. But let's be real, Trump is the far and away front runner here. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's most 
important to examine Trump. And he's sort of trying to have it both ways. He's both touting his anti-abortion bona fides by talking about appointing the justices to the Supreme Court that overturned Roe versus Wade, taking credit for that. And at the same time, sort of pushing this line of, oh, we'll, we'll strike some sort of compromise. He really talks up exemptions for rape and incest, which by the way, a lot of anti-abortion groups don't want those. Um, and so it, he's he's sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth, but at least according to the polls, it seems to be working. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the answer for Republicans is tell, tell everybody what you think they want them to know. Um, I guess we will see going forward. Well, I want to move on. I'm calling this next segment, Getting Old Sucks. Ask me how I know. I want to start with a joint project that KFF Health News has out this week with the New York Times called, quote, Dying Broke. It's about, and stop me if you've heard me say this before, the fact that the U.S. has no policy to help pay for long-term care, save for Medicaid, which only pays if you basically bankrupt yourself and your family. There is a lot in this series, and I highly recommend it. But one of the things that jumped out to me is that the cost of long-term care has risen so much faster than incomes that even if you started saving for retirement in your 20s, I started saving for retirement in my 20s, you'd still be unlikely to have enough to self-insure for long-term care when you're 75 or 80. Joanne, you've spent as much time as I have, probably more, writing about our lack of a long-term care policy. Anything jump out at you from this project? It was a terrific, terrific story, and it brought to life, you know, that even people who are definitely what you would think of as economically comfortable, it's not enough. It's like depending, it's just the luck of the draw, right? I mean, if you die fast, you can leave money to your kids. If you die slow, you can't. It was a really good story, but like what, you know, what I always am left with when I read these stories is it doesn't make a difference. Congress does not want to deal with this. And, you know, Julie and I were actually did a panel for a health group a few weeks ago, and one of the uh, state, someone from the California came up to talk about us. And, you know, why doesn't the United States ha- have a long-term care policy? I'm going to change that. And, like, we were trying to be polite, but it was like, okay, <laughs> good luck with that. And it's it's this is not a partisan issue. Republicans and Democrats both get old, and Republicans and Democrats both end up needing long-term care, whether it's in the nursing home or assistance in your own home. Republicans and Democrats both get Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. They both get disabled. And we have a government that just plugs up its ears because it costs so much money and it's an entitlement and they just don't even want to deal with it. And generation after generation, it's a disaster. It's inhumane. And of course, there was this you know, this brief effort in the Affordable Care Act with the Class Act that everybody was very excited. To, to nibble around the edges of right. it. Right. It, it was- I mean, the Class Act was good, but it wasn't even solving the problem. And it went away because they discovered that even that was going to be too expensive. It would not, it could not be self-sustaining. Um, and that's been the problem with the private long-term care insurance market too, that you basically can't get private long-term care insurance anymore because insurers cannot afford to sell it. They lose too much money on it and therefore it would be too expensive if they actually charged what they needed to, to even break even. Right. And there is an idea circulating, but it's not getting any traction. And it, it, it circulated in the past, too, of a, of a joint approach, a reinsurance approach, that it, you'd get, you'd try to strengthen the private long-term care insurance market, which is very broken. You'd try to fix that, but you wouldn't expect the, long, the private insurance market to do the whole problem so that there'd be reinsurance from the government. So for people who had, you know, maybe... I don't know exactly how it works, say a year or two of expenses that, you know, in private insurance would kick in and we would make that market work better and be there when you needed it. Um, But then if you were somebody who had, you know, multiple years and you exhausted that benefit, 
there would be a backup entitlement. But I've heard this talked about for at least 10 years, and it's never right, gone it's, anywhere. It's, it's revived, and it's not getting – I mean, this doesn't have a – I don't think it has a sponsor in this Congress. It did in the last Congress. So, like, there's no discussion. There's no – a lot of people think that Medicare actually pays for nursing homes, and then that's a pretty big surprise because it only pays for very limited. It, it pays, like, if you have surgery and you need some rehab in a nursing home for – what is it? Is it 12 weeks? I forgot what it is. But it's short term. It's a couple of months. It does. It's not dementia care, and even you know the other thing is when you read about the cost of long term care, that doesn't even that's just the room and board. <laughs> that doesn't include your doctor's bills, your medication, clothing, uh, personal aid because you you know the, the you often people who are complicated and need a lot of care often need a personal aid in addition to the staff. It's it's just a phenomenal amount of money. Like my kids don't understand when I say we need to save money. They they say you know what, you know don't you have enough? And I, no, <laughs> nobody has enough. You know Bill Gates has enough. Yeah, that's yeah. Warren Buffett has enough. Well, so as I mentioned, one of the big problems with long-term care is that there's essentially no private insurance for it anymore because it's so expensive and because so many people end up needing it. Um, that's very different from Medicare Advantage, where insurers are and have been making lots of money providing benefits that would otherwise be paid for by the federal government. But Rachel, some of your colleagues have discovered that, and in at least some cases, those insurers are making all that money because they are denying care to patients who need. It. This is your extra credit this week, but I want you to talk about it now. And talk about it early. Yes. So um, my colleagues, uh, Casey Ross and Bob Herman, have been digging into the role of algorithms in insurance decisions for the past year. And they just released a new story this week about um, with internal documents um, of a subsidiary called Nava Health of United Health, um, showing that the company was instructing managers to keep care, you know, timelines for a really expensive rehab that um, older people, I think, need after having, like, injuries or something like that uh, within, like, 1% of the time that this algorithm was predicting, regardless of what their actual human doctors were saying. And truly, I mean, the the stories behind these care denials are just really horrifying um, of, you know, uh, somebody who got a knee surgery and was expected to, like, slide on their butt down the stairs, you know, because they weren't paying for rehab. Families who've had to pay, pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars out of their own pocket after this care was denied because they saw that their loved one clearly needed money. Um, and there was a class action lawsuit filed um, then uh, after the story was published um, by people who had deceased relatives who had um, United Health Care um, MA plans and were denied rehab and um, later died. And so I think it's just um, really eye-opening as to the the actual instructions by managers inside the company saying that this is your expectation. And if you're not keeping, you know, coverage, care, rehab timelines within this, you know, 1% margin, then you aren't performing up to our standards. So this is basically AI being used to deny care. I mean, that's we you know we keep talking about AI and healthcare. This is this is it, right? This is an algorithm that says person who goes into rehab with these kinds of you know problems should only need 19 days, and if you need more than that, tough. I mean, that's essentially what's going on here, right? 
And the lawsuit did highlight as well that when people did appeal, they won most of the time, but most people didn't appeal. And the company knew that. And so I think that um, was also part of the lawsuit that came up. You know, it's hard to prove intent with these things um, or like what is a denial based on an algorithm, you know, but I think this lays out the case in um, as explicit terms as we've ever seen from the internal side. It does. All right. Well, let us move on from Medicare to Medicaid, the unwinding involving reviewing everyone on the program to make sure they're still eligible now that the pandemic emergency has expired, uh, continues with more than 10 million people now having lost their coverage, according to the tracker being updated by my KFF colleagues. And state Medicaid directors are predicting a year-over-year decrease in enrollment of 8.6%, which is pretty dramatically large. We also know that more than 70% of those being disenrolled may in fact, still be eligible, but the state was unable to locate them or they didn't file the right paperwork. Ironically, even with a much smaller caseload, state Medicaid spending is likely to rise because the additional payments that were provided by the federal government also expired at the end of the public health emergency. So states are basically having to pay more per enrollee than they were paying even when they were leaving everybody on the rolls. Advocates have been complaining all year that the Biden administration isn't doing enough to ensure that states aren't tossing people off who should still be covered. Has anything changed on that front? I know that, you know, the administration is sort of caught between this rock and a hard place. They don't want to come out, you know, guns blazing and have, you know, states say states saying that they're making this politicized. On the other hand, that, you know, the numbers are getting pretty big and there's increasing evidence that a lot of the people who are being, you know, relieved of their coverage should still have it. Including a lot of children <laughs> um, who absolutely, uh, you know, did not do anything wrong in this situation. And so it kind of reminds me of some stuff during during COVID where the Biden administration did not want to get into a public fight with GOP controlled states, but, you know, and was trying to negotiate behind the scenes to to get the policies they wanted to protect people. But at the same time, <laughs> that, you know, not, not wanting that open confrontation, you know, means that this is the, a lot of this is continuing to go on sort of unchecked. And so the data is coming out showing that a lot of people who are losing coverage are not re-enrolling in other coverage. Um, some are, but a lot are not. And so I think, you know, now, now that we're getting, um, going to get into, you know, Obamacare open enrollment, I think that'll be really key to see, you know, can we scoop up a lot of these newly uninsured people? And we did. I mean, we saw the administration put out a a press release saying that the early part of open enrollment has seen very large, uh, much larger than expected enrollment. And you kind of wonder, I'm kind of wondering how many of those people were people who got kicked off of Medicaid. And of course, we know that when people got kicked off of Medicaid, they were supposed to be steered to the Affordable Care Act, for which they would have obviously been eligible. But I'm wondering whether some of those people didn't get steered. And now that they're seeing that enrollment is open, it's like, oh, maybe I can get this. I mean, I have not seen anybody answer that question, but it's certainly a question in my mind. Right. And uh, coverage is more affordable as well because subsidies from kind of the COVID era spending bills do extend through 2025. Um, but again, there people might see increases in costs once those end if Congress doesn't extend them. So, you know, even if we do see some people moving from Medicaid to ACA enrollment, then, you know, there's a chance that they could see spikes in a pretty, you know, short amount of time. 
Yeah, I'll be I'll be curious to see as sort of open enrollment continues what whether they can break down where some of those people are coming from. All right, now it is time for this week in health misinformation. I have chosen a KFF health news story, which is also my extra credit this week, from science journalist Amy Maxman called "How Lawmakers in Texas and Florida Undermine COVID Vaccination Efforts." It seems that in Texas, health departments and other organizations funded by the states are now prohibited from advertising or recommending COVID vaccines or even saying that they are available, unless that's in conjunction with telling them about other vaccines that are available too. In Florida, as we have talked about here before, the health department has issued specific guidance recommending against the new COVID vaccine for children and teens and now men under the age of 40. And lest you think this hasn't had any impact, before the vaccines were available, Democrats and Republicans were dying of COVID in roughly equal proportions in Florida and Ohio, according to a study published earlier this summer in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine medicine. But by the end of 2021, which was the first full year that COVID vaccines were widely available, Republicans had an excess death rate 43% higher than Democrats. So medical misinformation has consequences. All right, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week. We think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Rachel, you've done yours already. Uh, Alice, why don't you go next? Sure. So I have a very depressing one out of the New York Times uh, by Jack Healy, and it's called They Wanted to Get Sober, They Got a Nightmare Instead. And it is about these fraudulent, scammy um, addiction treatment facilities in Arizona, but it notes that they do exist in other states as well that have been bilking the state Medicaid program for just millions and millions and millions of dollars and providing inadequate or non-existent treatment to really vulnerable people in need with very deadly consequences. And the places profiled in this piece really went after uh, Native American folks specifically. Um, So very, very sad report. uh, But it sounds like, you know, more attention on this is leading to the state cracking down on places like this. So hopefully we'll we'll make some progress there. Yeah, quite a story. Joanne. Um, this is a story, um, part of an ongoing series from Mississippi Today in conjunction with ProPublica's local reporting network. Uh, Mississippi jailed more than 800 people awaiting psychiatric treatment in a year. Just one jail meets state standards. It's by Isabella Taft. Um, in Mississippi, if you're unfortunate enough to be so to have such serious mental illness that a court orders you to have treatment and there's no room in a state hospital, they put you in jail while you wait for room in state hospitals. And sometimes they are housed in these facilities or rooms that are uh, meant for people with severe mental illness, but they're awful. And sometimes they're just housed with a regular prison population. And, you know, the sheriffs say, wait a minute, it's not really our problem to be housing, you know, state hospitals have to fix this. And they have a point. But in the meantime, that's who they have. They, that's where they end up. They end up in these, in these jails, these local jails, and the sheriffs are responsible. And only one, um, only one hospital meets the state certification for what um, these people need. And some of these stays, they're not like two days. They're, they can be prolonged. There have been a lot of deaths. There have been a lot of um, suicides. Um, it's a really um, pretty disturbing situation. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the mental health crisis and the mental health provider shortage and countrywide really writ large among some of the most vulnerable people. 
All right, well, we've had four grim extra credits this week, but they are all good stories. Okay, that is our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks this week to Zach Dyer for filling in as our technical guru while Francis takes some much-deserved time off. We're going to take next week off too for the Thanksgiving holiday. As always, you can email us your comments or questions or your suggestions for our medical misinformation segment. We are at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can still find me at x at jrovner or at Julie Rovner at Blue Sky and Threads. Alice? At Alice Olstein on X and at Alice Miranda on Blue Sky. Rachel? I'm at Rachel Kors on X and our Kors reporter on Threads. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon on X and I'm increasingly switched to Threads at Joanne Cannon 1. We will be back in your feed in two weeks. Until then, be healthy.